This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by, and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I am your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. Hello nature nerds, welcome to another episode of Into the Wild, lovely to have you here. You're not going to hear much from me at the top here because we've got a jam-packed episode. Um, I will share before we get into this week's show that I had a buzzing weekend with two wonderful pals of mine, nature nerds Sean McCormack and Billy Heaney. We went to Otmore site in Oxfordshire, an RSPB site. Um, we went to go and see something that I'm not going to give too much away because it's uh, we filmed a lot of stuff there to because Billy and Sean are making a new wildlife series for YouTube, which is very exciting. But I will share some things that we did see. I saw my very first barn owl and I saw my very first otter. It was incredible. Even though it was freezing cold temperatures all day, I don't know how Billy and Sean did it with no gloves. And I'm not great in the cold, but I've got to, got to be, I was dying for a day out in nature. And that's exactly what it was. We saw birds of prey. We saw loads more. But and do you know what? Embarrassingly, I've got to say it. I enjoyed looking at the birds. <sighs> I've got the bug. I've got the bug. But it was beautiful. <laughs> it was a lovely day. Uh, so I'm feeling nice, positive and had a nice naturey weekend. So anyway, on to today's show. We are going to be talking um, about two things, really. We're going to talk, be talking about the London Wildlife Trust's new book, London in the Wild. And we're going to be talking about London Wildlife. The London Wildlife Trust has, has done something that I think is absolutely genius. They've created a lovely new book called, like I said, London in the Wild. But do you know what? Actually, screw it. Let's just go into the episode. This episode is London in the Wild with the London Wildlife Trust. Okay, right. So let's let's talk about this. So a lot of people I hear say to me that London or cities around the world, but specifically London, they don't have any nature. It's all concrete jungle. It's pollution. If there is nature, it's a little bit like oh, it's a bit like that. And <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever said that to me. But my point is, is that there's a big misconception that people think that in cities there are no wildlife. And I've got to be honest with you, some of the big key species that are important to me, a lot of invertebrates and, and wildflowers, I've seen in and around London. From different green spaces around London with beautiful grasslands and wildflowers that are not having fertilizers ch uh, chucked all over them for livestock or anything like that, they're these spaces that are created for people, for leisure, and for wildlife. And you get this abundance of all three. And aside from plants, you've got insects everywhere. Some of the most beautiful butterfly moth species I've seen in this city. From the Jersey tiger moth to the lime hawk moth to the purple emperor. I've all seen, purple emperor butterfly I must say, I've all seen these species in London. 
And then you've got the canals that go through it and these beautiful waterways. And it's just, you see bats, you see fish, you see herons, you see cormorants. This city is buzzing with wildlife. And the great thing about it is it's reliable. You know the sites to go and see certain bits of wildlife. And I promise you, when you go there, that's exactly what you see. Now, let's talk about the London Wildlife Trust. You all know what the Wildlife Trust organization is. It's a wonderful organization, um, educating, inspiring people about nature, also having sites where they work with different stakeholders to better our nature recovery for people and for wildlife. And the London Wildlife Trust has done something genius. They have created a book. And I say book, and it is, but it's almost a guide as well to London's wildlife. Now, instead of just having one author for this, this is where the genius comes in, they have got 10 contributors from across London Wildlife Trust to write and share their knowledge. It takes away that perception that only one person can do something, only one idea can be put forward. It shows that in organisations like the London Wildlife Trust, there is an absolute load of knowledge and wealth of experience just waiting to come out. And it's so clear in the book, London in the Wild. So what is this episode going to be about? Well, I was lucky enough to talk to three contributors of this beautiful book, starting with Daniel Greenwood. Daniel started working with volunteers and communities in and around Sydenham Hill Wood from about 2012 to 2018, where he was monitoring wildlife populations, improving public access and leading a varied programme of public events. Daniel now lives in West Sussex and works for the South Downs National Park. And I was keen to talk to Daniel about what contributions he made to the book and also what his favourite bits were. Dan, welcome to Into the Wild. Lovely to have you here. Um, how are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thank you. Yeah. It looks cold in the room you're in. <laughs> is it cold? Yeah, it's, free, it's freezing. In our, in this, <laughs> this is a, uh, a wooden building in Peckham. It's about 20 or 30 years old, but it's, it's pretty cold in the winter, yeah. Yeah, it does not look like it's got central heating. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't. There's one heater and it's on now, but yeah, that's it. But it's irrelevant. It might as well not be there. Um, do you want to start by telling everyone who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name's Daniel Greenwood and I work for London Wildlife Trust and I'm the Great Northwood Project Manager. Nice. And you've been involved in the book Wild London, haven't you? Yeah, so um, I used to work for the London Wildlife Trust between 2012 to 2018 and I was the Sydenham Hillwood Conservation Officer. Um, then I left, I worked at the Southlands National Park Authority um, for about four and a half years and in that time I got uh, contacted by London Wildlife Trust asking if I'd contribute a chapter on woodlands. Mm. So that's how I got involved with the, with the book. That's nice. Nice. So obviously your nature and wildlife is your focus, your thing. So what's been your nature highlight in the last seven days? Seven days? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, every day, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, at this time of year, there's a mushroom. I'm mm. big into mushrooms that comes out in the winter and it's really bright orange and it's called velvet shank. Um, I've heard of a velvet shank. Yeah. I um, I think in Japan it's known as enoki. I might mm. be wrong about that. Um, but it, it's a really beautiful, um, it's an edible mushroom. I'm, I'm not looking to eat them, but I saw one on <laughs> Sunday, but it was, it was just a few meters out of reach from this boardwalk. But um, it's really beautiful in the sort of, you know, the wintry landscape to this bright orange. It's, that's my highlight. I'm going to quickly look it up. I've heard of it. Yes. It's quite common. Quite it common, is quite yeah. common, isn't it? They grow in the clumps, right? Yeah, exactly. Usually yeah. on dead or decaying trees. I have. I think we've got them on Highgate Woods. I've seen a few pop up. Yeah, definitely. definitely yeah, I've yeah. definitely. Velvet Shank is not a name for anything that you forget in a hurry. 
Do you know what I mean? No, it's, like, no. <laughs> it's an old name for leg, like the bird Redshank, you know, it's the old, old English. Of course. Yeah. Do you know where my mind went? Cockney rhyming slang, but we won't go on to that. We won't nope. go on to that. No, that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's three o'clock in the afternoon, right? Uh, <laughs> so you're, uh, so you're a fungi, so you, yeah, because if you're into your woodlands, fungi must be this time of year, it must be your, your peak. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had learned about fungi through volunteering um, at Sydenham Hill Wood with London Wildlife mm. Trust. And I learned from some people um, who did some guided walks and also some training. And mm. it's just the most amazing, immersive area of the natural world, you know. And it's, it really it's is. all year round you can see stuff. Mm. Autumn, obviously, is the most amazing time. But, um, yeah, I, I love I love mushrooms. I do guided walks um, for mushrooms as well. And I love, love learning all the time about the new species you can find, yeah. A lot of people say that birds are like so accessible in regards to connecting with nature, and that is true. But I agree with what you just said that the mushrooms, for me, way way more. Like, like they're all throughout the year, and they, when you really start to learn about the depth of fungi, like this is nature on another level. I didn't even think could exist. Yeah, well, there's like I think science has discovered a hundred thousand species, and there's supposed to be over a million on Earth. And there's one species that you get in the woods in South London, which is called false death cap. And uh, I use iNaturalist a lot to kind mm. of learn more about things. And it said, it's given me a notification saying it's going to be broken up into three or four different species. So, oh you know, God. I think it's through DNA analysis and stuff. Yeah. So it, there's a huge amount of things, but they're just, they're really accessible. People mm. love them. Obviously people eat them anyway, you know, from the shops and stuff. But yeah, they're really inspiring and illuminating. Right. So let's move on to the book London in the Wild. So. Have you ever had to write for a book or written a book before? So I actually studied creative writing at university and I've, published, I've self-published two booklets of poetry, which are, you know, nature-focused, particularly inspired yeah. by working in the woodlands and volunteering. I actually have got a bit of a sad story because I published, I, I wrote, a, I didn't publish, but I, I wrote a chapter for a book or a piece for a book, which I thought was going to get published about 10 years ago and wait all the way to publication day. And it, it didn't appear in the book and no. like, the editor didn't even tell me. And yeah, oh, that really, is heartbreaking. It, it, it really was because I'd like pre-ordered it from the local bookshop and like, I was really looking forward to it. And I was just leafing through the book and just got to the end and I was like, have I made a mistake? Do I go back? <laughs> the but, last four pages. Like, it's got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> it's got to be like, yeah, yeah. But anyway, but, uh, that, was, that was still good. But one day, I think I'd like to write a book, but I am kind of the view that, you know, you should only write a book if you really need to. And the, this yeah. book about London Wildlife Trust's work is absolutely, you know, it, it's, it's really great that it has been published mm. for so many. Like, London's nature is incredible. So It really is. And so how did you find the process then? Because obviously there's writing uh, poetry to be published, which is beautiful and, and, and one thing. And then there's writing a chapter for a book or something. But the, how did you write? Because this must have been quite a chunk. I've looked at the book. It's quite thick and everyone has quite a nice section in it. Yeah, I think I think probably this is the first time I've ever been published in a in a book in this way. So it was a great it was great personal experience for me and also to contribute to the to London Wildlife Trust. Um, I don't think it's kind of it's not as romantic as you might think because I've written a lot of articles that like I write a regular blog as well and I've mm. I've got a lot of articles about this sort of thing. I've also written a lot of articles for London Wildlife Trust for their magazine Wild London over the years. And I kind of adapted some of my the, the bits I thought were the best bits of writing. So I'd written one about stag beetles for the, the news shop and newspaper from about 2011, which is a Lewisham <laughs> newspaper. 
Um, and I just adapted that as one of the chapters. I'd also written an article for Wild London about woodpeckers mm. in London. And but on my blog, that's one of the most popular like articles. So I thought, you know, that's going to be a good one. I adapted that one. And I just wrote a new article condensing what I knew about woods and trees and fungi and my own experience of of um, the Great North Wood, which is the area I cover now, but yeah. also my work at Sydenham Hill Wood, which is, yeah, so it's kind of, it's a, it's written from the perspective of the Great North Wood, yeah. So you'd had kind of that wide experience of having to do different things anyway, so I guess this kind of like fell into your expertise in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's why they, they asked me to do it. Mm. And, and yeah, I was really honoured to be able to do, to be able to do that. And um, I think with writing, like it's very difficult to make a living from writing. Yeah. Um, and so you just, you have to, you have to be writing all the time anyway, <laughs> and you can't, you can't expect to be getting paid for stuff. So you get match fit if you get my kind of foot more yes, yeah. term there. So you, you do get the experience over time and you're kind of ready for it when it comes. Tell us about the section of your book. What, so it was, what is it Woodland you said you focused on for London in the Wild? Yeah, so that so London Wildlife just contacted me. Laura, who was working on it um, at the time, she contacted me, and as with Matthew Frith, who's also a contributor to the book, and they said, you know, would I contribute an article about woodlands? And I, yeah, I was absolutely delighted to do that. So I wrote it from the perspective of autumn in the Great North Wood. Oh, nice. Um, so talking about Sydenham Hill Woods, um, but also it's it's got a real strong focus on fungi. I mean, let's talk about fungi in terms of like it. It was only discovered as its own kingdom in 1969, I think it was. You know, otherwise, it's bit, I know, otherwise it was just lumped in with plants, um, whereas it's a really distinct group of organisms and mm. hugely, you know, we are hugely dependent on what they've done to evolve woodlands and support woodlands over time and, and all, the, all that they've done for the world around us and, you know, the recycling that they do and stuff. So it really felt like fungi was the right thing to go for and the right thing to lead the chapter, should we say. So, yeah, I, I focused it on woodlands and fungi in the book what i really like about london in the wild is it's got almost an interactive style to it is if for the reader yeah. it is, is a very follow along with us and even from note taking or, or, or uh, recommending places to visit is the wood can we expect that from the woodland section as well especially with if you're talking about fungi yeah i mean it, it tells you exactly one of the places you can go to but i think what i would say about it is you can apply what what is said about that particular area of woodland to most woodlands in the uk yeah. particularly in you know in definitely in the london area but in the south of england and further afield as well so because it's all about seasonal it's a seasonal thing isn't it when mm. the glut of mushrooms comes out um but i think the interactive element of the book though i didn't put it all together i think it really just it chimes with the fact that london wildlife trust is a you know a community engagement yes. organization and we work with um, a lot of volunteers who do incredible stuff for us and they have done over 40 years so you know it had to be a book that was accessible and engaging for people yeah absolutely it, it is so right i think it was, uh, the the other common misconception about london as well as the fact that it says like lack of wildlife you quite often hear like oh, there's no wildlife there is the fact people also say lack of community which is just so not true it's like so it's, it's yeah. so so wrong about this city in fact i have felt stronger community where i live in london than i have done when i lived in a county somewhere else like it's just more networks around here and everyone just knows everyone so it, it was really lovely to have that book as almost like a guide and made it feel as a reader someone that was involved in the knowledge in that book as well um for woodlands in london um so you focus it on fungi and was it the great northwood you said and Sydney? great northwood yeah Sydney Hillwood, yeah um where else in london for woodlands do you like or can we 
go and engage with? There's a, a woodland very close to where I grew up called One Tree Hill, which is mm. ironic because it's called One Tree Hill and it's got lots of trees on it now, but it was it got its name from the Oak of Honour, which was a, an old oak that um, has since been replanted. Yeah. I think you're always looking at the margins of the city. I mean, Epping Forest is an incredible. incredible, yeah. I mean, it's one of the most important woodlands in Europe um, for its ancient trees and and um, and its wildlife habitats. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's obviously one you need to respect because it's a very sensitive habitat. Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, places like Richmond Park with those, you know, incredible ancient oak trees just everywhere. I mean, yeah, where do you see anything like that anymore? <laughs> yeah, so... You know, I think when I was working every day and locally in the woodlands, then Southern Hill would I really immerse myself in it. And there's loads of parts, other parts of the Great Northwood, like Streatham Common, even as part of the mm. Great Northwood. Um, and we've got a few other sites that are close, kind of not necessarily accessible along the railway sidings and stuff, which open up maybe once a month or something. But for me personally, Epping Forest is a favourite and Richmond Park as well. I couldn't believe the size of Epping Forest when I got there. Like when I first went there, and I, I think yeah. my girlfriend and I, we we were on, we weren't far away on the narrowboat. We're like we we were just moored up somewhere, and we're like, I will go for a walk to Epping Forest, thinking we can do a lap round. It's like such the Londoner thing to think. <laughs> and then and like it's, and we just got there, and we were like, this place is huge and beautiful. Just like we were there on a beautiful summer's day, and it was just an absolute delight to walk around a bit of it, um, and try not to get too lost. But it is an in- incredible place, and I urge people to visit if you do get that chance. Um, for London in the Wild, what is your favourite thing about the book? What did you love from the process to the final product? What did you love about it? I think it's just amazing that it's out there. It's that London Wildlife Trust has got a book. It's a, you can buy it in the V and A, you know, <laughs> um, which is just it's just so it seems to make so much sense to me, and it feels long overdue. And I think it's such mm. a great great achievement by colleagues who are here now who have moved on who did work on the the book so i think the fact that it's there is good i mean the diversity of habitats are really nicely on show yeah there's some great contributions from people who've offered, who've contributed a huge amount to london's wildlife people like matthew frith yeah he, he's a he is a, a legend of london's nature conservation so you know having his words in writing in that book as well is really really important and other people as well do you think it's a way to go for wildlife organizations to actually create stuff like this and, and not just from an aspect to promote but to engage to educate to connect and to normalize wildlife do you think like this kind of accessibility is something that organizations should probably be going down yeah absolutely i mean i think the amount of knowledge that is held within these organizations mm. it deserves to be in, you know published yeah more often more regularly and i mean I, I read a lot of natural history writing have done over the years and i think you know there are personal opinion here there are a lot of books that are published that probably wouldn't have the impact of something written by the knowledge you know people with the knowledge Mm. that's held within these organizations and by that i mean volunteers and staff because Mm. one of our volunteers has just written a history book about woodlands called the wood that built london chris shuler It's, it's about the great north wood it's an incredible book but it just goes to show that you know, there is so much knowledge, but it just doesn't necessarily seem to be making it out to the publishing channels until now, of course. So that's really good. Amazing. Well, um, Daniel, thank you so much for um, giving our insight into your section of the book. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko forward slash Into the Wild pod. 
The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Well, as you heard from that chat, I also got to talk to someone called Matthew Friff, joined also by the wonderful Amy Pryor. Amy said some things in this show that I was just stood up, clapping my hands. Yes, preach, my sister. You are absolutely correct. Amy is a marine and estuarine scientist with over 20 years of experience in marine and coastal management. Amy is the technical director at Thames Estuary Partnership and chairs the National Coastline Partnership Network. She's a lifelong ocean lover striving to enhance the health of the ocean, including the Thames, London's local ocean. Matthew is a London conservation legend, according to Daniel. And to be honest, I completely agree with this. I really get along with someone like Matt because he's a true Londoner like myself. He gets the point of community in this city. He understands wildlife. He knows the challenges. He's lived all around this city and I really did enjoy my chat with him. He's currently the Director of Research and Policy at London Wildlife Trust with over 30 years experience managing land, advocating for the protection and creation of natural green spaces and engaging thousands of people on the wonders of London's wildlife. Matthew, welcome to Into the Wild. Should we start with the obvious question and get you to answer who you are and what you do? Indeed, Ryan. I'm Matthew Frith. I'm the Director of Policy and Research at London Wildlife Trust. I've been working at the Trust now on and off for over 30 years. And my main role now is on advocacy and developing the evidence base for ensuring that London is a city richer in nature, not only for its own ecological benefits, but also the benefits it can provide for people. 30 years, you must have seen some changes throughout nature and and the way nature is managed, conserved and how people connect with it over that time, right? Uh, Yeah, massive changes. (laughs) You know, some of the things that we didn't think was possible back in the late 80s are now happening. At the same time, you know, parakeets were almost confined to a rugby pitch (laughs) just outside outside Epsom and now pretty much everywhere across London. Uh, Whereas uh, a lesser spotted woodpecker is virtually absent in London. So, yeah, major changes. Does it keep you hopeful then? Because, well, not the second point you mentioned, but the first point at least, that you said the things that you didn't think were possible in the 80s happening now. Does that give you hope for the continued work for nature in this beautiful city? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't get up in the mornings if I didn't think I was hopeful. (laughs) Um, You know, if we look at the way that already the work on cleaning our rivers, and I'll let Amy talk about that in a bit more detail, but also Mm -hmm. the renaissance of green roofs, you know, 167 hectares created in the last 10 years or so. The work in woodlands has has come on leaps and bounds. Many of our parks are being transformed in terms of their benefits for biodiversity. And also, you know, the planning system, which is probably the Mm -hmm. most influential thing in in terms of of conserving London's nature, is much more sensitive to what Mm -hmm. it used to be. It's not perfect by any means, but local plans, architectural drawings, they kind of get the value of nature now. They kind of get that they have a responsibility to ensure that their footprints on the environment are as light as possible and that they can try and secure 
tangible benefits for wildlife and people's access to nature. And we hear two things a lot in this country, and it probably gets echoed around the world as well, but especially London. I hear it all the time with my nature friends is that, oh, there's not much wildlife or it's really hard. I don't like London. It's not very nature filled. And the other thing we hear is that, well, there can't be that much of a community feel in London. But that I know as a Londoner, and I know you will know this, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Uh, no, absolutely. I, I used to work for the government's nature conservation agency, English Nature, as their urban advisor. Mm. And I remember literally in my first week being told whether well, I'll have a fairly easy life because it's foxes, pigeons and rats that live in, <laughs> live in our cities. Now, we have a database which is managed by Green Space Information for Greater London, which we helped establish in the 1990s. And there are 15,000 species on that Whoa. database. And so these are species that both reside in London or visited in a seasonal way or occasionally are kind of rare stopovers. But it is a very diverse city in terms of its biodiversity. And that's partly reflecting the kind of cosmopolitan, multicultural mix of London as a whole. You know, we've got communities from all around the world living here, working here, uh, and inadvertently or directly, they have brought plants and animals and fungi into the city, which we wouldn't have normally had if London had been a fairly isolated city from the rest of the world. And what we've also seen in the last 10 years in particular is a growing kind of explosion of very local based activity. And that's partly because there's been a bit of a vacuum at a strategic level, pan London level. I won't bore you with the details of that. Almost because of that vacuum, people are doing their own things now. They can find information on the web very much more easily. It's a much more accessible domain than it used to be. And also, I suppose in many ways, recognising the kind of fairly, how do I use the word, exclusive scientific realm from which it perhaps was presumed to emerge from into something is much more representative of London now than it, than it was back in the 1980s. And you've had this amazing career with London Wildlife Trust and working with nature in the city. And it's so it's, you know, beyond obvious for me to say that nature and wildlife is very important to you. But if I ask you this question, in the last seven days, in the time of year we are, we're in now, like autumn-y, wintry times, What's been your biggest nature highlight in the last seven days? My biggest nature highlight in the last seven days, I think that's seeing muntjac deer. Nice. And now again, there, so that's the deer that is coming into the city in far greater numbers. I uh, saw it in one of our nature reserves in Hillingdon, mm. um, uh, along with um, jackdaws uh, cawing in the trees. So yeah. Yeah, in, in the glimpses of uh, winter sunshine, that can be magnificent. Yeah, it really does give it a nice feel. We have that on Hampstead Heath quite a lot. Where apparently there's a population of munchak deer on Hampstead Heath as well, which I didn't know about. But the the, the jackdaws and, and everything like that, you get that nice, I don't know, just that calling out in the early morning in the mist of the sun. It's so nice to hear. It really sets an atmosphere. And also this morning when I had my swim in the Lido, two Egyptian geese dropped in. <laughs> You're right. It is so multicultural, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Um, I'm also going to welcome Amy onto the show. Um, Amy, thank you so much for being here. Would you like to start by telling everyone who you are and what you do? Yes. Hi. Um, thank you for inviting me onto the show. 
Um, I'm Amy Pryor. I'm the Technical Director at the Thames Estuary Partnership, and we're a charity that was set up back in the late 90s, early, early 2000s, uh, out of recognition that a busy industrial working river, but also a natural wildlife superhighway, needed a more integrated approach, is what I would call it, to mm. management and sustainable development of the river. And what that really means is that they needed an organisation that could be trusted and respected to bring people together across all different interests and agendas. So across, you know, industry, across business, across NGOs and charities, um, across communities and any kind of regulatory authority like the Port of London Authority or the Environment Agency. Mm. Bring everybody together to discuss the challenges that the river and her communities along the riverside are facing and trying to find a way forward together that spans and brings together benefits across environment and across society and across economy. And, and that sounds, everything you just said sounds absolutely spot on because you're involved in every, what you know, it's almost like all the correct buzzwords, exactly how things should be happening. Like you're involving everyone in this, everyone's got a stake, um, everyone needs their voice heard and stuff. However, as a human being, I know that must be such a damn challenge <laughs> to work with that many uh, kind of different voices. And how do you go about involving everyone with one main goal? Yeah, it's uh, it is a challenge and it's not for everybody, I have to say, mm. you know, it's um, you end up having to be essentially having good knowledge about pretty much every subject you could possibly think of that comes <laughs> to bear across the land, across the sea, um, understanding where people are coming from, but also trying to treat them like people first. Yeah. So it's it's not just about the work. It's about our connection to our place. And that place should be as vibrant and verdant as possible, you know, with uh, with great biodiversity, lots and lots of wildlife, because that gives us pleasure and it gives us other services that we need in order to survive, to make life worth living. And so everybody kind of has that innate connection with nature. But sometimes you can get uh, you can get really bogged down in the day to day work or the objectives of whatever business or organization you're working in and sometimes you know there's different ways and means of helping people just look up from the laptop occasionally mm. and really think about what are they trying to achieve and what are the other benefits that could be achieved at the same time so if you're working on like a hard piece of infrastructure like a like a flood wall for example that flood wall doesn't have to be vertical sheet piling in every place across the Thames. It yeah. can be soft engineered. It can have green built into it as well as intertidal habitat, you know, or reed mm. beds and salt marshes that we've lost over the years need to be built back in because that's all part and parcel of having resilience in the face of climate change and having enough space for nature that the, the wildlife can't see under the water, but is very much part of both our heritage as a, as a city, but is also, you know, that provides us with lots of different services and security that we might not think about in our day to day. So it's a very much a hidden world under the water, mm -hmm. um, certainly in the Thames. And part of our role is to sort of bring that to life and try and connect the dots across that land and sea interface to try and get benefits for the river through riverside development and benefits for communities and people that live and work along the riverside to make those areas as green and blue as possible. 
I, I but that's the kind of like I don't know nature conservation I really love is that challenging the status quo of, so instead of just doing something is just stopping and going what can we actually do here <laughs> how many boxes can we tick when we're just trying to do one thing at the original start and I've got to say because again people that are listening to this show just like I asked Matthew earlier people are gonna look at the Thames Amy and the estuary and be like really yeah. <laughs> is that beaming with life it's not a river that you look at and go well there you go talk about natural but i know that's wrong so how much life is there in that river uh, it's absolutely teeming with life you know it's it's one of the the biggest myths and the worst perceptions that <laughs> i've i've never found a way to get past it and i think it's really a numbers game you know the, there's over 12 million people in london you you know, you're not going to reach everybody. Yes. Um, but the overarching view is you look at the river, it's brown, it's encased in metal, and it's got litter floating on it. So it looks like it's dirty and dead, but it's a fundamental misunderstanding of an estuary. For starters, the Thames is not just a river, it is an estuary all the way through to uh, the tidal limit, which is in Teddington, which is near Hampton Court Palace, for those that don't know, in West London. Yep. It's 95 miles long, and the definition of an estuary is basically the tidal, tidal uh, tributary of the ocean. So essentially, it is the ocean coming up through the city twice a day on the tide. And that is that connection with the global ocean that really ensures that it's teeming with life or, you know, that that's the access point for wildlife coming in and having to use the river as part of their migration. And there were some species there, very iconic species, like the mighty European eel. Also, yes. not everybody's favourite. I often get a lot of uh, comments. That, oh, You're not starting like strong when that's your cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. I have to say, I'm a massive champion of the underdog. So yeah. the uglier and squid, squidgier, the better, really. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the eel needs to move into fresh water as part of its life cycle to mature, mm -hmm. and then it needs to get back out to sea. So um, you know that it needs to be able to move up and down through the estuary into our freshwater rivers and back out again. And the way that we've built across the land and seascape to create London, the Tem London is here because the Thames is here. Back in the Roman days, it would have been a very shallow, very wide moving estuary, a river mm -hmm. that you know moves across the landscape. So it would have had braided edges. And what we mean by that is little channels off the main waterway that provide like off main channel refuge spots for fish and others to get out of, either get away from predators or get out of uh, any kind of a pollution event that's coming along. And we just don't have that anymore because we've, we've taken the land back from the sea in order to build the Port of London, essentially. And that's what's, that's what's grown London into the city that it is today. But in order to keep us safe and our property safe and keep the sea out, we've had to constrain it to a third of its size that it would have been wow. uh, when it was natural when the Romans arrived. So we've lost through that squeezing, if you like, of the river into a much narrower channel. It's both created a very deep channel. So the water flows much faster than it would do naturally. And that has a knock-on effect for the animals, for the wildlife and the fish trying to move up and down the river, you know, running the gauntlet basically from the, the salty end down near South End on Sea, all the way up through central London is no mean feat, especially for a tiny, <laughs> tiny yeah. little fish. Um, and they use the dynamics of the river to get there. So they actually surf the tide. Um, wow. So they'll rise up into the main water on a flow tide. That's the tide that's coming into the city. 
they'll surf it as far as they can go. And then when the tide changes, uh, they'll try and squeeze themselves down into the edges and basically ride it out until uh, the tide starts to come back in again and then they can pick it up again. So we need to help them. We need to help them with that journey by building that natural or semi-natural habitat back into the river edges. But just to go back to that perception of the river being dead and dirty, you know, it's, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of estuaries that they're meant to be blue. All water is <laughs> meant to be blue, right? But an estuary is <laughs> yeah. basically mud. It's mud and water. So on each and every one of those tides, it lifts the sediment off the riverbed and it mixes it into the water. Mm. And that's actually what makes estuaries our most biodiverse aquatic habitats in the whole country. Because that lifting of the sediment releases all sorts of like little critters that are living in there, nutrients that are our fish and our flora and our birds need to live and thrive. So it's really, it's like this big nutritious soup, essentially, for, for anything that lives in it, they love it. And we've done, you know, massive strides in turning it around. So back in 1957, it was declared ecologically or biologically dead. Couldn't support life. The mighty eel still still managed to use still it. Still managed. <laughs> That's not a good indication of river health, I have to say. Uh, the eel does like dark, dank corners. <laughs> Yeah, the eel was okay. But in terms of everything else, there was nothing else there. And so that's been really turned around mainly through working with industry and uh, improving the water quality over time. So it's really a shining example of recovery mm. of how you can recover this huge uh, aquatic ecosystem by changing your practices on land and your behavior at home. It's taken time and an awful lot of effort by a lot of people and probably, you know, an awful lot of money, but it's it's worth it at the end of the day. And yeah, we have a beautiful teeming river now. So what you can't see through the murk is that there's <laughs> over 125 species of fish. We get four types of marine mammals, two species of seal. And uh, we get visited by dolphins and uh, harbour porpoise we have, pretty much resident in the lower estuary, in the outer mm. estuary. And we get the occasional whale, but that's not usually a, a good story. Because yeah, I was going to say, that never usually ends well. <laughs> no. I always get very sad when I hear that. I'm like, oh, another one bites the dust. Um, but, every, but I suppose from, a, from an excitement point of view, from a raising awareness point of view, it's, a, you know, they're charismatic species mm. so uh you know people walking along the thames path the last thing you expect to see is a pilot whale so at least at the very least it, it's a message that we are part of the ocean we are connected mm. to the ocean and everything we do here has an impact on the ocean so you know our thames is our local patch of ocean and we should do what we can to safeguard it and contribute to um you know the global global issues that we're all tackling I think one thing I'm going to be saying to everyone, if anyone comments negatively about the Thames and its colour, I'm just going to turn around and go, I think you find it's meant to be brown. It's an estuary. Thank you very much. And I might get that on a mug and a T-shirt. <laughs> the Thames is meant to be brown. Thank you. Um, I must ask you as well, what has been your biggest nature highlight in the last seven days? Well, actually, I think it was within the last seven days. Somebody took a cracking photo of a harbour porpoise just downstream of Tower Bridge. Which is really unusual. Wow! Really? Yeah, I've been I've been meaning to. Uh, once I've got a bit of brain space, I'm going to look into it because harbour porpoise. They're one. They're really hard to spot because they have a very short dorsal fin. Mm. So in the waves of the water, they can be really hard to see. 
but secondly they're really shy so they don't normally come that far up into the into the city they don't like the boat traffic they don't yeah. like uh, the constrained nature of the river because it's quite narrow only starts to widen out just uh, just at tower bridge actually you notice if you go on a boat downstream it's very mm. narrow through the central section between sort of putney barnes kind of area and then basically down to tower bridge and then it starts to widen out so it's really unusual to see them this far upstream it was a part of me that was like oh no is this going to be a sad story but uh, i haven't heard any sadness yet so, so hopefully it's just it's done a bit of a jolly it was probably following some fish <laughs> well that's amazing to hear i want an absolutely amazing spot Matthew, let me ask you. So we're talking about uh, London in the Wild, this fantastic book by London Wildlife Trust. Have you had to write for a book or any kind of publication before? Uh, or was this the first time? I've written much beforehand. Uh, <laughs> so previous to working for London Wildlife Trust, I used to work for the London Ecology Unit, uh, which no longer exists. We produced at that time what are known as kind of gazetteers of the wildlife sites in every mm. borough. So I contributed to a number of publications of those. And then since working for the Trust, I've done various bits and pieces, articles for our members magazine, Wild London, produced papers on the Black Red Start conservation work in London. Um, and also more recently, some of our work at Walthamstow Wetlands uh, regarding the bird monitoring there. and. Also, you know, the responses of the trust during the COVID years when mm. people suddenly discovered their local green space. Uh, and we had that marvellous spring and early summer where the blossom was fantastic. The insects were out in force. The birds were singing brightly against a backdrop of virtually no traffic for a very short period of weeks. And, you know, I think we are beginning to see a bit of that legacy still continuing. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I've, I've been having these conversations with people quite a lot in different areas of the UK about whether they've noticed that connection stay. Have you noticed that in the areas you work in that, you know, that kind of that interest keep up? Uh, yes, I, if I'm being perfectly honest, it's probably not quite as much as we might have hoped. And I think we were all, and this is collectively speaking across organisations working across London, whether it's local authorities, fellow NGOs, community groups clearly people have discovered local spaces they didn't know existed but of course there's been this great return to uh well a form of pre-covid mm. uh, normality uh, whilst we might not be working in the office every day we are spending some time into those spaces and you know it's whilst that in itself has been brilliant in raising the profile of nature conservation our work across london it has also meant that some spaces did suffer heavy impacts mm. through sheer footfall and we're having to sort of repair that damage hopefully it's fairly short-lived but um we also had of course over this summer the impact of the drought and the heat wave which yeah. also threw us a few curveballs in terms of wildfires in mid-july yeah, it really was. It's, it's it's not been, there's been challenges in the last two years. I think that's the, the simplest and most plainest way I can say that for both us and for the uh, for the natural world. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, which um, Amy touched upon in terms of, yeah, say both our organisations are trying to work uh, in an integrated fashion, working with all the kind of stakeholders that have an interest in our natural environment, be it the tidal Thames, our woodlands, our chalk downlands, etc., 
Yeah, that includes businesses, includes local authorities, includes community groups, residents, associations, etc. And I think what we have seen is that is taking grace, whilst it takes a lot of energy to try and sustain, which is a challenge in itself, there is a general trajectory in, in what I would say the right direction. There is a greater awareness of the nature and the climate crises and the works that we can do to help mitigate those. Because I think whilst we are first and foremost a nature conservation charity promoting the conservation of London's biodiversity and people's contact with nature in the city, at the end of the day, we are working in the capital city of the United Kingdom, one of the largest and busiest and as I said earlier, most cosmopolitan cities in Europe. And therefore, we have to bear in mind that people have many challenges in their working and daily lives, which we have to recognise. And I think the way that we do it, either through collecting data, analysing the kind of science base, our narratives through storytelling, through media, our conservation work on the ground by engaging people that is the way that we kind of build that whole narrative of London being a city which can be greener even though it's growing in terms of its population size and will have significant pressures in terms of infrastructure development I'm quite convinced that you know it will shift to being greener than it perhaps was 50 years ago. You know, Amy mentioned the, the Thames being biologically dead in 1957. Well, 70 years ago, on this day, we were in the middle of the Great Smog of London, a combination of coal-fired smoke pollution and an anti-cyclone that was hanging over the city. It's almost beggar's belief, but 4,000 people reputedly died in those five days. Actually, uh, more recent assessments saying that about 12,000 people may have died and a larger number had significant impairment from bronchitis and pneumonia and other diseases to the lungs caused by that pollution. So from a pollution perspective, whether it's water pollution and air pollution, we're not out of the woods yet, but we have made significant steps. And I think that gives us confidence that we've got the solutions that we need to make London bluer and greener and wilder. We just need the kind of resources and political willpower to make that happen in a kind of step change way. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it as well. And, and you and you both brought up points there is that, you know, to look to recognize where we are. And, and just, despite not being out the woods, we have to go back to see what things were. You, you can't, you know, yeah, we want to move forward, but to do that, to recognize where we are you're right, you've got to go back because otherwise you kind of, you get so worried and upset about not being where you want to be. You can kind of get bogged down and it can prevent that steps going forward. So yeah, it's a wonderful point you you both make there about like to, to recognize that, look at what it was and look at where we've come. And then that will give you that hope to move forward. I, I must ask Matthew as well, like, so in London in the wild, what was your section of the book? How did how did you play a part in this in this wonderful book by the Wildlife Trust? Well, we were approached by a, basically a publishing agent to see whether we were interested in producing a book about London's nature. And talking to my colleague at the time, it was like, well, I've been wanting to write a book for a long time. And whilst <laughs> this book isn't that book, 
and I won't diverge, yeah, divert you on that particular issue. <laughs> it does capture some of the elements of that, which yeah. is there are a number of organizations and people working in those organizations that I respect for the work that they do. And I didn't feel right for the trust to write that book alone, mm. partly because I wanted to demonstrate that it's more than just the trust, partly because just the sheer capacity of my work, as Aim was suggesting, whether it's coming up to Christmas or not, is there are loads of stuff to do. And I was never going to have the time to write that book myself. So I identified all the contributors saying, I want him, I want her, and I, these are kind of things that we'll suggest to them, but we're going to leave it to them to basically pull that piece together. Now, my contribution was effectively about nighttime wildlife and about the kind of whole issue of wildlife in the city as well, mm. you know, in the sense that going back to your point about colleagues who were sort of saying, there's nothing here, or the, the Thames is brown, you know, what is yeah. there so special about London? When you dig below the surface, or you look up above, you can see an amazing diversity of stuff here. And it was about trying to draw those parallels out. And the nighttime, of course, is time where whilst we're moving into a 24-hour city in terms of uh, people, let's not forget that much of our wildlife, be it bats, be it moths, be it eels and other fish migrating up and down the Thames, they actually require darkness mm. to complete their life cycles. Um, and it's about the challenges. How do you create a city primarily for people and design it and manage it in a way that allows those species to flourish. So, for example, the work that the Bat Conservation Trust has done in trying to get better designed lighting into place so it doesn't impact upon bats, illuminated river project, which was looking at trying to get a much more integrated and, uh, shall we say, environmentally sensitive approach to lighting the bridges across the central part of the Thames from Tower Bridge to Albert Bridge, and to be able to manipulate that lighting to turn it off or down during fish migration, or to least impact the bats flying in and around Battersea Park, for example. So those are kind of things which I think we wanted to sort of highlight in that part of the book. The one thing I love love about this book is, is how engaging and how accessible it is. Anyone can pick this up, even if you're not a Londoner, doesn't matter what age you are, doesn't matter how much into the nature you are, you can pick this up and it's so engaging, there's things to do in it. But Matthew, what is your favourite part about London in the World as a book? It was a coming together of a number of people that I respect mm. in terms of their professional work, in terms of their passions. I particularly was pleased to hear Kabir speak at the, the launch of the book and his mm. contribution at the end because, you know, I'm, I'm as, I, as I said at the beginning, I've been doing this stuff for some time now, but I want to see a new generation of people step into our shoes and, and take even greater, more radical steps into the future. Because if we, you know, we need to hand that baton across and people like Kabir can be examples of those who will be taking these challenges on as the city grows. And he is, you know, he's already a great flag holder or flag bearer, I suppose, mm. for that younger generation of people. We've got people working for us now, colleagues who are in their early 20s, who I'm hoping will also join him on that journey. So it, it was that kind of bringing together. You know, I was... A, 
don't, and don't get me wrong, I was under strict instructions not to lapse into scientese kind of language to try and recognise that this was about a book for an audience that was not necessarily well-informed, for want of a better word, but was curious. Mm. You know, they might have seen something they hadn't seen before or seen some plants on their journey to school or from place of work and wanted to know why that might be there or the fact that you know, the surprise, as you've already mentioned, in the sense that, God, these things live in London. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, we, you know, you know, Amy's saying she gets queries. We get queries all the day about pictures coming in saying, what's this? You know, bizarrely, we had somebody saying, um, I've seen an uh, I've seen an, an iguana on a wall in 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 Frognal, which is in near West Hampstead, and um, it was it was obviously some pet that had escaped basking mm. on a wall, and I've also had a photograph on a, of an Amazonian parrot in a park in Brompton, just to give you an idea of the things that surprise us because yeah. they're either releases or escapes or whatever but people are curious they want mm. to know that and this is just a really an opener it's an opener into this fantastic world we work in amy what about yourself with writing a book is this something you've had to do before is this your first time having to write something for it to be published definitely my first time writing for a book um <laughs> i think i'm stretching about my brains before i was like have i written a book before no i don't i don't think i have um i do an awful lot of writing <laughs> as matthew knows you know fundraising proposals where yeah. you have to you have to bring an issue to life in a in an engaging way so i was really pleased that matthew asked me to contribute to this book um i think i did a good job but uh, it's, it is quite hard not using technical terms mm, and yep. what others might consider jargon for any kind of nature, I think, especially when you're, you know, that's that's what you work in. But mm. certainly for for me, for the sort of marine and estuary side of stuff, you know, how do I use a different word other than intertidal? Like I don't, I don't know, <laughs> don't know how to say that without having to use three sentences rather than one word, you know. Um, and that that is one of the challenges really of engaging with people because sometimes you can write something you think is really engaging it's a, a sort of level for the public and I've had communications professionals say to me actually your writing reads like you need a tertiary degree <laughs> to understand it I'm like oh no after all this time so I think for me the book really does hit home you know it, it mm. is accessible it's something you don't have to have a higher level degree to understand and I hope I contributed to that in a meaningful way you, you you all absolutely didn't. I think that is it's one of the biggest things because as someone that is, you, you know, immersed in this world that, uh, you know, even from the podcast level and different research things that I've worked on, I'm still not, you know, a massive academic in regards to, you know, wildlife and conservation. And I struggle to read some things that are out there going, I'm just, that's not how my brain works. I'm just not going to pick that up. But like, as you both said, this book, it, it kind of mitigates that. It stops that. It It's so easy for everyone to be involved. This is going to be an obvious question, I think, Amy, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What was your topic of focus for the book? <laughs> <laughs> it is on the River Thames, Thames Estuary, and why I think it is the blue beating heart of London. You know, I mm. think we've got everything here. We do have a lot of green spaces. We do have thriving wildlife all across the land, but we've really got it all because we've got our local patch of ocean running yeah. right through the middle of it. 
and all of those uh, land-based animals at some point uh, a lot of them will interact with the river in some way so you know the bats that Matthew was talking about they like to forage along the river edges so you know improving those river edges for the land animals as much as the uh, water animals is really really key to having that joined up and connected nature all through the city mm. and certainly London Wildlife Trust do a huge amount of work in that arena really connecting our green spaces together with the green corridors and pathways but you know it rarely actually reaches the River Thames riverside mm. mainly because of that flood defence you know that flood defence that we have to have to keep us all safe but there's ways to innovate around that and there's ways to reconnect the river more meaningfully with the landward sides, even in the central section. And it might have to be engineered. It might be hidden to most people's eyes. Yeah. But having that connectivity and animals being able to move around through the city by these green and blue corridors is absolutely essential. And I've got to ask you as well. Everyone else has had it. What is your favourite thing about the book? I'm really biased. I liked my chapter, but then I'm, I'm a massive Thames Estuary geek. But uh, no, I really... the best answer you could have given. <laughs> I'm going to pat myself uh, on the back here, Ryan. Uh, well, no, I enjoyed the whole book. I mean, Matthew's writing is lovely. Uh, he, you did send me. Uh, Matthew sent me a um, an example of the writing because I was quite nervous before I started writing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you really do have a way with words to bring something to life, Matthew. But uh, I also really enjoyed Kabir's section yeah. and that whole future look because, you know, it really is for future generations. All of the a lot of the work, certainly that I do in the estuary, uh, you know, our flood defence plans, that's a hundred year blueprint. You know, I'm going to be long gone by the time that comes to fruition. And in the marine world, in the estuary world, anything you do to improve the marine environment takes a long time to see mm. the benefits. It can take anywhere. I mean, baseline is 10 years, really, to get the benefits. So not only is it challenging to actually get that kind of thing delivered, chances are you might not be in the same job. You might not be living in the same place. You might not even mm. be here to see the outcome of it. Yeah. So that long, I think what we're really missing in our society is that long-term thinking, that yes. future generational thinking. Yes, to that. Because all of our systems, our administrative systems, our political mm. systems, our funding systems, everything is set up short term. And that's not how nature works. Nature works in multiple scales mm. and time scales um, and geographical scales. And we need to be better at adapting to working with nature by thinking bigger, thinking more joined up and thinking much longer term. Absolutely. So I think that that whole chapter was really, it was both hopeful and reassuring that there are, you know, young minds out there that get mm. it and feel really impassioned. And the whole movement with Greta Thunberg and young people really starting to stand up and have a voice, essentially speak back is just really reassuring to see as well. And I think trying to find ways to find those next Matthews, those next Amys, you know, those people that can do this kind of joined up partnership work and really advocate for nature, but at the same time as making sure that we as people and our economy that supports us um, can thrive all at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. They're completely connected and intrinsically woven together. And we need to be thinking in that way and finding the young people that get it and want to learn how to work in that way so that we can pass the baton on when it's time. 
Well, thank you both so much for being on the show. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. The book is fantastic. And I'm going to do another ramble about talking about that on the actual episode when it comes out. So I won't say that now. But, <laughs> but thank you both so much for coming on and giving your insights about how the process was and about what the content was. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for listening to this wonderful episode. And I must say, Nature Nerds, if you want to grab a copy of London in the Wild, and you absolutely should, the link to the book is in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.